3: The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Media. Jim Morrison died at the age of 27, and he lived a life that deviated far from the straight and narrow. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. Four would be the number of family members he would dismiss and eventually abandon as he went west, to California, to Hollywood, to the big time, to a place far off in his own mind where he made the rules. Two more would be the number of days that passed when he got lost in the desert with a friend, off on a soul-searching, acid-dropping boondoggle. He returned with wild tales about what exactly happened to his companion. Another 14 would be the age of the girl standing on the sidewalk that he impulsively stopped to kiss while driving down Hawthorne Avenue. Two more would be the number of white lightning LSD tabs he gobbled up and chased with puffs of grass and a watery domestic before heckling the well-intentioned band on stage at the Turkey Joint West. And five would be the number of years he'd have left to live after he held the girl captive in her apartment, pressed a knife against her flesh, and threatened to cut her open for disrespecting him. On this episode, underage girls, white lightning, death threats, and Jim Morrison lost in another fantasy. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. William Parker of the Los Angeles Police Department insisted that this was no fantasy. The reality waiting for them behind the closed doors of the Muslim temple on South Broadway, the headquarters for the LA chapter of the Nation of Islam, was clear. Guns, piles of guns, pistols, shotguns, assault weapons, locked and loaded. A veritable shitstorm of resistance that challenged the very authority Chief Parker had fought so hard to maintain. The anonymous tip had been called in after dark, and it confirmed the suspicions that had been festering in Chief Parker's head. The suspicions that the Nation of Islam or the Communist Party or shit, maybe both working in tandem, were hell-bent on undermining the LAPD in order to push their own agenda. Chief Parker was sure of it, and the muscles in his shoulders and neck were tense, and his migraines swelled. Parker was exhausted. It was 2 a.m. on Wednesday, August 18th, 1965 and the Watts riots had just ended the day before. The city was broken. It was smoldering, bleeding. Though the rioting had stopped and the curfews had been lifted, L.A. was still beyond fucked. It had been a full-on urban war unlike anything any American city had ever experienced. It all started with a simple traffic stop in Watts, a working-class African-American neighborhood in southern Los Angeles, black driver, white cop, L.A. was in the middle of a nasty heat wave. It had been sweltering in the 90s all week, and many Watts residents didn't have any money for air conditioning, so the sidewalks and front yards were full of people milling about. The driver of the 1955 Buick, Marquette Frye, had been drinking, as the failed sobriety test showed. But when Marquette's brother, a passenger in the car, went to get Marquette's mother, things escalated. Marquette's mother got angry, and then Marquette got angry. And soon, everyone got angry. Someone was shoved, and then another person was shoved, and a cop drew a shotgun from his patrol car, and a crowd began to form. And then Marquette lost it. You motherfucking white cops aren't taking me anywhere. The crowd of hot, angry Watts residents got bigger, from 100 people to 300 people, the cops called in backup. Watts was about to riot. For days, it wasn't just about the traffic stop. It wasn't just about Marquette Fry. The tension in Watts went deeper than that. The tension had been there for years. The black community endured substandard living conditions, lack of opportunity, and seemingly endless harassment from the police. In the two years leading up to this incident, cops had shot 67 black residents, half of them in the back and half of them were unharmed. So on that day, when the cops faced off with Marquette Frye and Marquette Fry refused to back down, the people of Watts rose up they protested with violence. Stores were looted, buildings were burned, rocks were thrown, guns were fired. A mob of 3,000 people took to the commercial section of Watts. Locals transformed themselves into neighborhood snipers and shot at fire trucks to keep them away from the burning buildings. President Johnson called in the National Guard. Curfews were enforced, not just for Watts, but for other African-American neighborhoods in L.A. as well. A spray-painted wooden sign in the middle of the street leading into Watts read, Turn left get shot. Dick Gregory, an African-American comedian and social activist, was brought in to address the crowds and help restore order, and they shot him too. Watts was burning. The riots set off a slew of national urban protest. Not hippy-dippy grab some signs, some acoustics, and some reefer and hit the quad, but real violent protest. Riots over racial inequality and social injustice broke out in cities all over America. New York, Philly, Rochester, Newark, California, and LA had proper warning, but of course, they said it would never happen there. It would never happen in California, where just a year earlier, white voters passed Proposition 14, which turned back social progress and kept segregation alive by making it legal for property owners and landlords to discriminate against tenants based on the color of their skin. It would never happen in Los Angeles, where, in April of 1962, cops rolled up to a mosque and shot seven unarmed black Muslims. One was paralyzed for life. Another, a Korean war vet, was shot from behind while submitting to arrest and died. But it did happen, and it happened in Watts, after the police and authorities brought the hammer down. After 13,000 National Guardsmen were brought in to crush the protest, 34 people had been killed. The majority of them were shot by police officers or National Guardsmen. All the dead were black. 1,000 were treated in hospitals. Another 4,000 were arrested. 261 buildings were destroyed by fires and other destruction. And another 600 were heavily damaged. And yet, to Chief Parker, this wasn't a race war. This wasn't about racial inequality and social injustice. It wasn't a disenfranchised population reaching a breaking point with a culture of rampant white supremacy, fear, and hate. No, Chief Parker believed it was communists and Muslims. Chief Parker's own personal boogeyman. He was sure of it. He told his protege, Daryl Gates, about his theories. He'd make sure that Gates didn't think they were fantasies either. Gates would remember those conversations with Parker when he got to lead the force decades later. Parker got in the heads of everyone on the police force. He knew the Nation of Islam Muslims from the South Broadway Temple weren't just law-abiding citizens practicing their freedom of religion. They were sympathetic to deep-rooted threats to American democracy, namely communists. And worse than that, they were armed to the teeth with heavy firepower at a point in L.A. history when Chief Parker's police department was doing everything it could to maintain control and uphold its authority. And Parker knew that today, the Muslims from the South Broadway Temple We're planning on killing some cops. Parker clutched his department-issued piece, felt his migraine pound, an insistent throb right where his palm gripped the gun's handle. He was surrounded by other LAPD officers with their own tensed up necks and shoulders, with their own itchy trigger fingers, ready to burst through the front doors of the temple at 2 a.m. on a hot August pre-dawn morning. Shit was about to get real. As the cops started to ram the front doors, they thought they heard loud sounds from inside. Bangs, pops. They could have sworn they heard them. Could have sworn they heard gunshots. But it was just Parker. It was Parker's paranoia successfully planted on. Chief Parker was inside their heads. And there were no shots coming from inside the temple. There were only the shots being fired by the LAPD. The cops raised their weapons and entered the temple firing, just like they had in 62 when they rode up on the mosque. They lit the place up and they found no guns, no weapons, no ammunition. Three weeks later, a judge dismissed all charges against the Arrested Nation of Islam members. He blamed the whole thing on LAPD's imagination. Undeterred and unable to let his fantasy slip away, Parker switched tactics and started blaming Watts and its aftermath on the civil rights movement, which he said was preying on people's emotions. A year later, Chief Parker died of a heart attack after receiving an award and standing ovation from the 2nd Marine Division. He was the longest-serving chief of the LA Police Department, and certainly one of, if not the most controversial. Meanwhile, Marquette Fry joined the Nation of Islam. In the summer of 1965, Los Angeles was forever changed, scarred. The tensions bubbling below the surface had exploded, Just like at other urban spots throughout the United States, the social sea change had arrived, and it wasn't pretty. The disenfranchised had had enough of their oppressors' bullshit, and the hippies were looking to upend the establishment. Riots, protests, love-ins, be-ins. And Jim Morrison could not be bothered. He spent his days during the summer of 65 on a Venice Beach apartment building rooftop, shirtless and stoned living off avocados, oranges, and a seemingly endless supply of mind-altering LSD. Far away from the war zone of Watts, Venice Beach may as well have been in a different solar system. Jim Morrison was having his own private Watts inside his mind, though. He fed it dope and acid and booze. He unlearned what he had been taught, tore down the values of his parents, chased a new reality in the fantasy world his mind created. He did what he wanted. His carefree life frightened him, it liberated him, and it frequently got him into hot water with the law, especially when his so-called liberations involved an underage girl and a missing friend. Jim Morrison didn't know the girl was only 14. He motioned to her, standing on the side of Hawthorne Avenue in Los Angeles. Her arms crossed and her stance impatient, and then motioned back to the LAPD officer looking over his identification. He leaned in towards the cop's ear, dropped his voice to just above a whisper. Man to man, she looked 14 to you. The cop wasn't amused. Jim looked back to the girl. Another cop was now standing next to her. And with that added perspective, he could see it now. Next to the hulking cop, it was clear she was definitely 14. Fuck. Something he clearly hadn't seen when he abruptly jumped out of the moving red Chevy to grab her and kiss her on the side of the road. He looked at Philolino, his friend who was behind the wheel of the Chevy. Phil looked like he wanted to slink down below the steering wheel and make himself scarce until this whole thing was over. The cop repeated Jim's statement back to him. So he had told Phil to slam on the brakes right here in the middle of Hawthorne so that he could bail from the passenger side and scare some teenage stranger out of her wits by running up on her and kissing her? Right here in the middle of Hawthorne? Jim laughed and nodded his head. He added that he didn't expect the police cruiser to be rolling by at that moment it happened. The feeling just came over him. She was there, he was feeling friendly, why not? Carpe diem and all that other jive. The cop arched his eyebrow and the other officer walked over to say that the girl wasn't looking to press charges. The cops in California didn't know Jim by name yet. They would eventually, cops all over the country, would soon know Jim Morrison by name. Rock and Roll's public enemy number one, troublemaker extraordinaire, that drunk bearded beatnik. But in 1965, Jim Morrison was a nobody, just another weirdo freak jumping out of his car to do some stupid weirdo freak stunt. The cops told him to knock it off and to beat it. The year before, Jim finally transferred from FSU to UCLA, where he restarted his academic career as a film student. He read Nietzsche, read Huxley, read Young, read Ginsburg, and Camus. Tried to shock and outrage with his student films. In return, he received rejection and poor grades. Fuck it. If his film professors and fellow students didn't want to acknowledge his pure talent, they could fuck right off. When they handed out diplomas that spring in 1965, Jim was far away from the UCLA campus. He had successfully decamped to Venice Beach. He became part of the scenery, human driftwood. He crashed on the rooftop of the apartment building where his friend Dennis Jacob lived. Raided nearby avocado and orange trees for sustenance, let the sun bake his bare chest and lighten up his long hair. Venice, a uniquely Californian stretch of sand on the west side of LA, is known for its bipolar blend of drug fueled counterculture and weightlifting muscle culture. The Dogtown Boys birthed skateboard culture in the abandoned backyard pools of Venice, and Arnold Schwarzenegger pumped his way into Hollywood via Muscle Beach's equipment. But before all that, and after falling into disrepair in the 1950s, the one time slum by the sea was having a bit of a renaissance in the 1960s, and Jim Morrison was there to take it all in from high upon his rooftop perch. The sun rose and the sun set. Black smoke drifted from Watts from the east and dissipated by the time it reached the coast. Watts could have been happening on an entirely different planet as far as Jim Morrison was concerned. There on the roof, he was above it all, above his shitty grades in film school, above the rejection, above his parents who disapproved of every movie he made. Each morning, he would stand on the roof of 14 Westminster Avenue, a few pounds lighter than the day before, and reinvent himself again. In Venice, he could be himself, whatever that was, and he could chew on LSD, unsupervised. He crushed LSD tabs between his teeth like an outfielder snacks on sunflower seeds. It was everywhere in Venice Beach. Owsley's white lightning tabs were passed around the boardwalk. Acid was an over-the-counter treat at Venice head shops. But over-the-counter acid and free-for-all white lightning was not enough for Jim. He needed more. He wanted it right from the source. He wanted to squeeze that peyote cactus taste pure mescaline, stick his tongue out, and freak in the hot desert sun. That was the trip he wanted to take, the ultimate trip. So it was that Jim and Phil hopped into Phil's red Chevy and headed east, desert-bound. After the incident with the 14-year-old on Hawthorne, they were back on track. The desert called to Jim. The heat, the expanse, the cracked earth and taupe desolation. He heard about ceremonies where Native Americans would shoot arrows at the peyote cactus to prove their mettle. Jim knew he would prove worthy. He wasn't Jim Morrison, the military brat from Florida. Ever since the moment on the New Mexico highway when he was four, Jim was someone different. Surely a peyote trip in the desert would offer him more enlightenment on who that person was. Jim returned two days later, but Phil didn't. Jim came back and started telling stories. Stories about shooting arrows at peyote cacti with his Native American brethren. Stories about a Latino biker gang that took offense to his girly hair and decided to fuck him up real good. And then, he told the story about killing his friend Phil the peyote was so strong he couldn't tell what was real anymore who was real anymore he looked at phil's face in the moonlight out in the middle of a california desert the wind much colder at night than expected he looked at phil's face and it wasn't phil it was the cop on hawthorne it was that cop at the fsu football game it was his holier-than-thou film professor it was his father captain morrison The moonlight intensified as the night wore on and the shadows across Phil's face ebbed and flowed and freaked him the fuck out. Jim couldn't remember the exact way that he murdered Phil, but he remembered burying his body in a riverbed. Which riverbed, which desert, which peyote cactus, which face Phil was wearing at the time, Jim couldn't say. Jim's friends in Venice didn't know what to think. Jim's fantasies came and went. Sometimes they weren't that far off from reality, and other times they were certifiably gonzo. They laughed it off as Jim being Jim, even if it was strange that Jim had returned with Phil Chevy and no Phil. And there was one person, though, who wasn't laughing it off. Phil's father. He got wind of Jim's story, and it shook him to the core. Phil's father was a lawyer. His son had been missing for days now, and he had to spring into action. He wasn't about to let some snot-nosed acid-gobbling authority baiting punk leave his child in the wind. He tracked down the 14-year-old girl that Jim had kissed on Hawthorne and convinced her to press sexual assault charges so that Jim would have to be brought in for questioning. He'd get to the bottom of this and find out where Phil's final resting place was and put his killer, Jim Morrison, away for good while he was at it. But almost as soon as the cops put Jim under arrest, Phil appeared, dazed. Confused, back from the dead. But Jim wasn't a murderer. He wasn't a peyote forager. And he sure as shit wasn't getting pummeled by bikers on the side of the desert highway. Those fantasies weren't working. Everyone saw through him, saw through these bullshit stories he told that he apparently got off on telling. He was a fake, a phony. He needed a new fantasy, one that he could really stretch his legs inside of, one that no one would see coming but that everyone would absolutely believe was true. He found it on a stage in Santa Monica when he was least expecting it. The first of many stages where he'd have all eyes on him, watching him as he let out his inner id and went hog wild.
4: We'll be right back after this word, word, word. From BBC Radio 4,
0: at purdueglobal.edu.
3: Jim Morrison stood at the back of the crowd at the Turkey Joint West, cupped his hands around his mouth, and screamed his request at the stage for the second time. Play Louie Louie. Jim favored the back of the room in any room because the back of the room generally meant close proximity to the bar. He could maintain first-person access to beers all night, and also, be far enough away from the stage that he could heckle as loud as he wanted and not be seen by the performers. The band, Rick and the Ravens, announced another surf rock-flavored jam to the crowd at the Turkey Joint West, a British pub on the ocean end of Santa Monica Boulevard. The crowd clapped their approval, but Jim dismissively waved his hand toward the stage and audibly groaned. Jim knocked back the rest of the bud in his stein, wiped his foamy mouth with the back of his hand and yelled some more, we want to hear Louie Louie. Louie Louie, the free bird of the 60s. Sure, the song was a jam, reductive, insistent, and sloppy. But to Jim, a big part of the song's allure was the perception of shock value. Originally written by Richard Berry in 1955, Louie Louie has since become one of the most recorded songs in pop history. In 1963, two rival bands in Portland, Oregon, started playing the song in their live sets, Paul Revere and the Raiders and the Kingsmen. The Kingsmen took it to the limit one night and played a 45-minute set of just Louie Louie, which in my estimation is simultaneously one of the coolest and most subversive moves a band could ever pull. The next day, they went into the studio and recorded their electric piano frat rock version of the tune that would prove to be the most enduring. A few years later, in 1965, College bands like Rick and the Ravens included it in their crowd-pleasing repertoires. But a large part of the song's notoriety had to do with the Kingsman's slurred delivery of the lyric and the song's supposed obscene content. Did the Kingsman slip a sexually graphic song about a sailor and his lady friend onto the billboard and cashbox charts? Did they really just sing, me fuck that girl, all kinds of ways? Never mind the rumored racist lyrics, which is a whole other conversation that we won't get into here. But let's just say they would not have upset Police Chief Parker. Not entirely unsuspected, radio stations banned Louis Louis from the air. Mothers forbade their children to bring that filthy 45 into their homes. It was such a controversy that the FBI, the FBI, launched a month long investigation into the song to determine if it was truly filthy. They sped it up. They slowed it down. They played the 45 at 33 and a third, played it at 78. Their conclusion? Unintelligible at any speed. Years later, the Kingsman's drummer, Lynn Easton, admitted that the authorities were on to something. It was hidden in plain sight and never discovered. He copped to yelling, fuck, after he botched a drum fill and smacked his sticks together near the end of the first minute of the song. It's there. Go give it a listen and turn it up loud. All of it made Jim Morrison love the song even more. He loved how the public's reaction to the song was so divided. How it teetered on the edge of indecency. How it made people uncomfortable. It made parents uncomfortable. Jim hadn't seen or talked to his own parents in a while, but he was sure as shit that Louie Louie offended every bone in their conservative bodies. And that made him smile as he stood at the bar at the back of the turkey joint West and demanded a big, reductive, insistent, sloppy jam at once. Play Louis. Before Rick and the Ravens started up another surf rock tune, the singer and sometimes piano player Ray Manzarek held his hand up, and the band stood at ease. He put his hand flat up above his eyes and squinted to the back of the room. Morrison? Is that you? Ray asked into the mic. Jim and Ray were UCLA film buds. Jim's reputation preceded him, as did his loaded, booming voice. Only Jim Morrison would be drunkenly giving the band shit from the back of the bar. Jim yelled back. Hey, baby, we gotta go. Jim Morrison, the merry prankster. Ray made the decision on stage to turn the joke around on his film school friend. Well, come on up here, Morrison, Ray said. Let's hear you sing it if you want to hear it so bad. Jim, three sheets to the wind on draft bud and stoned on some good Venice grass and a few tabs of white lightning, happily obliged. He took the stage, Ray handed him the mic. He assessed the crowd, ran his left hand through his dark, tangled hair, and then let out a guttural woo. It started in his belly, mixed up with all the bud and resonated up through his chest and arms. Made his fingers tingle, he barked, he whined, he tried to eat the fucking microphone until Ray, laughing, yanked it on the cord and backed it off. New New eye, baby, we gotta go. Rick and the Ravens banged out the song's basic three-chord stop. The electric piano made that sweet slip-and-slide riff. The drums, big and dumb with a raucous four-on-the-floor beat. Jim closed his eyes, belted out the chorus, and felt a new fantasy taking shape. Let's give it him right now. Jim got the call-up again from Ray to be part of the band again not soon after the Turkey Joint West gig. Rick and the Ravens were playing a high school graduation dance backing up Sonny and Cher. It was June 1965, and the duo were just a month away from releasing their iconic single, I Got You, Babe, which would sit at the top of the pop charts for the majority of August. One of the band members had quit in advance of the gig, and they were contracted as a six-piece, not five. If they didn't show up with six band members, their contract would be bunk and they wouldn't get paid. Ray needed a fill-in. Jim seemed to enjoy his moment on stage in Santa Monica. Even better, he wouldn't have to do anything at this gig. Ray would give him a guitar to hold, and they'd run a chord to it, but they wouldn't plug him in. Ray just needed someone who looked the part, and goddammit, if anyone looked like a rock and roller in 1965, it was Jim Morrison, the sun-kissed, mind-altered Venice King. Jim accepted. Shit, this rock star stage fantasy might be easier than he thought. The idea inspired him, and he started to write his own lyrics along with some rudimentary melodies. He'd recite the lyrics like poetry on the Venice boardwalk and sing them like songs from atop the roof of the Westminster building. The third time that Ray asked Jim to join was the one that took. Ray bumped into Jim on the beach in Venice. Jim told him he was working on songs. He sang Moonlight Drive to Ray. Let's swim to the moon. Let's climb to the tide. Penetrate the moment that the city sleeps to hide. Manzera caught it immediately. Poetry. And to boot. A voice. That voice. Jim Morrison's voice. A crooner's voice. But a crooner's voice on the verge of something crazy and dangerous. Ray asked Jim to join the band, for real. Ray wouldn't have to sing lead anymore and he could focus on the keys. Ray's brothers, Rick and Jim, were also in the band. But they didn't get Jim's lyrics, didn't get Jim's vibe. Jim was known as a poser and a flake. He was an aimless drifter who would only weigh them down with his ponderous lyrics and overwrought psychedelic sinatra When they bailed on the band, Ray and Jim picked up John Densmore on drums and Robbie Krieger on guitar, both from Ray's meditation class. Robbie was a tender 19 years old. They didn't have a bass player, but Ray worked double time to make up for it. He discovered the Fender keyboard bass, which he played with his left hand while he played his Vox organ with his right. The doors would take that sweet 60s electric piano and organ pop and twist it up, distort it, as if the songs from that era were swirls of watercolor on paper. And the doors were a big droplet from a pipette that sent the colors reeling. Songs like Question Mark and the Mysterians, 96 Tears. Sam the Sham and the Pharaoh's Wooly Bully, possibly the greatest recorded song of all time. Songs like Booker T and the MGs, Green Onions, the Riviera's California Sun, the Animals, House of the Rising Sun, the Castaway's Liar Liar. But the Doors knew that one of their greatest assets would also prove to be one of their biggest liabilities. Jim Morrison was going to be one hell of a frontman, but he was wild. Wild on stage and wild off stage uncontrollable, on his own trip, running fast from a past and a society that wanted to label him and cage him. He wanted to challenge others, but he didn't want to be challenged by anyone. He would help make the Doors famous, cement them in the pantheon of rock music forever, but he would also jeopardize the band's career. At times, it seemed like he'd end their career. He'd provoke audiences, provoke cops, offend, and shock. He was so volatile. He wouldn't even think twice about pulling a knife on a girlfriend who dared to tell him what he didn't want to hear. Rosanna White wanted to scream but she was worried it would just make things worse. She didn't want to spook Jim Morrison, didn't want to enrage him any more than she already had, didn't want to escalate. But his grip was tight and the knife blade was sharp. She was worried that he was actually cutting her, that the blade was piercing her skin, that she'd bleed all over the apartment, that Jim Morrison would leave her for dead. If ever there was a time to scream, it would be now. Rosanna had seen this sort of behavior in Jim before, He would whisper sweet nothings in one moment and then turn around and become verbally abusive in the next. But in the past, it was all talk, all threats. He had never been physical with her in this way. This was different and it scared the shit out of her. Jim held Rosanna tight against his bare chest. He rarely wore a shirt, walked around like God's gift to chess, assumed everyone wanted a good long look. He held her tight by her wrist, her arm twisted around to her back and her back pulled into his chest. He had grabbed her carving knife from her kitchen in a fit of rage, and before she knew it, she was all twisted up with a cold, sharp carving implement tight against her. Jim dared her, dared her to say it again, dared her to insult him again. Who the fuck did she think she was? Rosanna had just called him out on his bullshit, once and for all. Jim would just carry on like some profound poet day after day, pacing around her apartment every day that he happened to be there, shirtless, stoned out of his mind reciting someone else's poetry shittily, or worse, reciting his own shitty poetry. And seriously, who was she? Who was he? Who the fuck was Jim Morrison to say anything to her about anything? Jim had been crashing on and off at her apartment for months, using her, eating her food, sleeping in her bed. If anyone should be getting upset, it should be Rosanna. But when he wasn't at her place, he was at Katie Miller's place, one of Rosanna's art school friends. Jim used Katie in the same way, She'd let him borrow her car and he'd disappear for days, come back, talk sweet, and then go full asshole all over again. But two girls weren't enough for Jim. He needed more. More to mooch off of, more to wrap around his finger, more to yell at when things didn't go his way. His third steady around this time was Pamela Corson, real maternal type, originally from Weed, California. She was 18 when he met her, fellow military brat. Pamela would be a constant, a long-term steady, and Jim's most well-known girlfriend over the course of the rest of his life. But to Rosanna, she was just another one of the chicks he screwed around with. When he wasn't at Rosanna's place, he was at Katie's or Pamela's. He was predictable. Jim didn't work, didn't go to school, just got super high all the time and rehearsed with his band. The Doors, he told Rosanna. Another dumbass poetry reference, if she recalled correctly. Sure, Jim was sexy and could be sweet, but most of the time, he didn't seem genuine like he was playing a role, putting her on, putting everyone on. So she called him out, told him he was a phony, and that sent Jim over the edge. It was actually Jimbo who had helped push Jim over the edge. Jimbo got in his head, fed into his anxieties, his fears, his insecurities. Rosanna hated it when Jimbo came over. Jim would just invite him over like it was his apartment. He'd have a six pack dangling off his finger, a lit joint hanging from his cracked lips. He was pudgy and bearded and scratched himself all the time. He'd get hammered and spout some racist nonsense, what he thought were the actual lyrics to Louie Louie. Did that gross dude thing where he'd snort up a huge wad of mucus in his mouth and then look around for a place to spit it. Jim was at his most ridiculous with Jimbo around and his most entitled. We are so much alike, he told Jim. I know exactly how you're feeling and I'll tell you what you gotta do with
0: these chicks, man. You gotta keep them in their place, or else, they'll walk all over you. You're Jim fucking Morrison, man, and your band is gonna be huge. You're gonna be the biggest fucking rock and roller in the
3: world. Any of these chicks would be lucky to have you. You have the power. You need to fucking show them you have the power. Jimbo wasn't there when Rosanna called Jim a stoned poser. But he didn't have to be. He had planted the seed. Jim felt the carving knife pressing slightly into Rosanna's belly, and he thought about it for a moment, thought about going through with it, cutting her, slicing her, gutting her. It was partially the drugs. He couldn't even remember all the things he had chewed and swallowed and smoked that day, and partially the shit that Jimbo had said, and partially Jim's own delusion that he could just cut a person right here in her apartment and walk away from it. He leaned into Rosanna's ear. I will cut you and watch you bleed he whispered. Not the phony, navel-gazing, poetic whisper he'd used to get her in bed, but one that came from a darker place and intended to frighten her. It ended seconds later when John Densmore walked into the apartment with Katie. The spell was broken. Jim let Rosanna go, laughed off the knife, laughed off the threats. The whole thing was one big gag, a goof. Not to Rosanna. She had seen through Jim Morrison once before, and she saw through him now. Jim felt disrespected. He also felt empowered by the knife incident, like he was in control. He shrugged off Rosanna's comments as bullshit. She was just jealous he wasn't a fake. He'd do the disrespecting from now on. In fact, he'd disrespect whoever and whatever he felt like. He'd hold a knife to the whole world. The Doris soon started gigging on the Sunset Strip in LA, where they won some hard-fought auditions to get regular gigs. Almost as soon as they did, Jim held up the knife, challenged them all, bit the hand that fed him. what were the Sunset Strip Clubs going to do about it? Simple. They'd fire his ass, the whole band. As soon as the Doris secured a legendary gig playing at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go, Jim Morrison would open his big mouth, and the whole thing would come crashing down. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. All right, The 27 Club is scored and co-written by myself, Jake Brennan. Zeph Lundy is the lead writer and editor on the show. Matt Bowden mixes the show. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. The 27 Club is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the 27 Club series page. The 27 Club is released weekly every Thursday. Season one features 12 episodes on Jimi Hendrix, which are all available for you to binge right now, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to The 27 Club on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your shows. And if you'd like to win a free 27 Club poster designed by the man himself, Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for 27 Club on Apple Podcasts or hashtag subscribe to 27 Club on social media. And we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. You're going to want to give that a follow. So get out there and spread the word about 27 Club. And as always, you can find me blabbing about other crazy rock stars on my other show, Disgraceland. And you can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. Rock around.
2: Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity Voice Remote.
1: Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks...
0: Zumo Play.